This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, this is Peter Sablaki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to the podcast. All right, Tommy, what do we got? Today, we're going to be looking at the Great Depression under Hoover, under President Hoover. Yes. Uh, so what we're going to try to do is this this may be our first two-parter because uh, Tom and I kind of had this conversation and we realized that you can't really do Great Depression in one podcast. That's 40 minutes. That's impossible. So there's so many topics here that in themselves could be podcasts, right? I mean, it's no question. Yeah, as we're going through. This is a huge yeah. amount. Yeah. So what we're going to do today, as you said... Um, we're just gonna we're gonna talk about the Great Depression under President Herbert Hoover. But to do that, we really are gonna talk about the Great Depression, like what caused it, how do we get there, and then President Hoover is elected, and um, kind of right before, and how what does he do about it? We're gonna go through President Hoover, and then what we'll do next week is we'll pick up with the Great Depression and the presidency of Franklin Delano Roosevelt in which we'll talk about the New Deal, which there's a plethora of different New Deal programs, which is why. We're going to make this a two-part episode. Just so you know, Tom, I don't know if you remember this, but some bragging rights. Back at our college, when you and I went to college, my lesson plan was chosen as the model lesson plan for the university. Do you remember that? That's because, that's because you knew people, though. Like that's, no, I did it. That's because it was a good lesson plan. Uh, I'm sure personally. it was good, but you also like you know hung out in yeah. the library all the time. You knew all those yeah. people, and they kind of just yeah. felt bad for you. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. Partially. This kind of works. I mean, more power to you. However, those lesson plans, just so we're on the same page. So the lesson plan that, that I made or or whatever, it was a five-page lesson plan for one <sighs> lesson, which is so unrealistic for anyone listening to this. As teachers, guys, yeah. like none of that works. You, you get in a classroom and a student says, hey, so, uh, you know, what Herbert Hoover, how did he die? And you're like, well, actually, boom, <laughs> forget the lesson. Plan. Yeah. And, and then one thing happens and then yeah, one paper Done. airplane and then yeah, <laughs> totally, totally different set of set of rules. So totally set different day. Yes. However, that lesson plan that was chosen as the model for the entire university that I did was on the Great Depression. And ironically, I actually went and tried teaching that my first year teaching, I took this lesson plan out and I was like, yes, this is the model for the university. Dude, I lasted through the do now five minutes. And I'm like, this is not going to work. <laughs> so it just shows you that, um, you know, you learn. Yeah. Things most- might look fancy, but the practicality of it sometimes. Yes. Yes. Doesn't always work. So we're but, not going to be using yeah. that podcast from 20 years ago. I mean, that, uh, that lesson, that lesson plan. plan. All right, let's do this. So Let's talk. Let's start with the Great Depression. We all know Great Depression started in 1929. We know that it lasted throughout 1930s. And I think what uh, what we're going to kind of start with is, all right, what causes this Great Depression out of nowhere? Considering the yeah. 1920s were like a happy go. Yeah, the Roaring Twenties. Yeah, I mean, in the Great Depression, it it didn't just define a generation, right? Define an entire century. Absolutely, and the world. Like, yeah, and, and in the world, and really, if you look at it, there's still ramifications from the Great Depression now Absolutely. that still exist. So and we'll get into that. We can talk about some of those things. That's something that I always like to, like to stress. But um, basically, it was because of the 1920s and those roaring 20s when money was flowing that, you know, kind of lay the groundwork, the framework for the perfect storm to happen for the Great Depression to usher in this Great Depression. And really, it wasn't just one day. A lot of people talk about the, the stock market crash, which we'll talk about. And that was a part of it. But there are a bunch of other things, too. It wasn't one day, one thing that caused it. 
And that's what yeah. people, I think a lot of people kind of get confused. I always had students that were kind of like, wow, they always thought it was just, it was just that one day, you know? It was, yep. but it wasn't like Black Tuesday, Thursday, Monday, whatever. You know, there were several ones, but it's also the everything going on in Europe. There was what was going on in the um, in the farm, the farming crisis. The Great Depression Huge. started even sooner. That was even yep. sooner, which is not really well known and not really talked about that much. Absolutely. So we kind of want to go over today some of the history of it, some of the events that happened, but also in everyday life, just how how people kind of went about their day. Yeah. What did it mean to live during, during this the time? Depression? During yeah, the Great absolutely. Depression, yeah. And, yeah, and they, which in our cases, I don't know about yours, but um, my grandparents actually were alive in the Great Depression. So I remember like hearing, you know, they were telling me stories and stuff like living in Brooklyn during the Great Depression, you know? Well, my grandparents lived in interwar period Europe. <laughs> yeah, so a little bit different. As bad as, as bad as it was here, times that by 100 and that's, that's what's going on there. It was, yeah. it was pretty yeah. Pretty bad, pretty bad. Yeah, yeah, it's Great Depression. So overall, right, in 1920s, um, it was very laissez-faire economic policies in the United States. But during that decade, there was a lot of high tariffs that were put in place to protect American businesses, but they really hurt international trade and really weakened European economies, which were already weak from World War One. So just to kind of set that up, as in like the world is kind of America was looking out for America during 1920s, which actually kind of hurt or hindered the world's ability to pick themselves up after World War One. But there's a lot of changes happening in the United States, specifically industries in the United States. So when you look at key basic industries in the U.S. up to that point, you have to point to railroads, textiles, steel, stuff like that. Um, and railroads started to lose a lot of business to new forms of transportation, with mainly trucks, buses private automobiles, like this is, you know, 1920s, 1930s. So these industries started to decline and lay off workers, which kind of reduced their hours. And along with that, think of like, if you don't need railroads, you don't need as much steel. So that affects the steel industry. Then mining was another huge issue during this time. So it's almost like advancements actually hindered us because coal mining, which was huge and actually expanded during wartime, during World War One was no longer in high demand by middle to late 20s. So coal mining was super hard hit, in part due to stiff competition from new forms of energy. Um, this included hydroelectric power, which we'll talk about the Hoover Dam and so on and so forth, but also um, natural gas and fuel oil. Uh, by 1930, you have, 19, say by like 1930, 31, it is hydroelectric power, fuel oil, and natural gas that supplies about 60% of all the energy that had once come from coal. You know what I mean? So now you have like you you know, all these, these new, new massive yeah. industries that are these new industries. Yeah. And a lot of, and the other ones are, they're competing with, with, like you said, coal and some of the other industries, the steel industry, and they're just, they weren't able to keep up. So yeah, the, right. the new technologies come in, it puts people out of work. The people are, these individuals are unskilled workers. They, they, that's all they really had was that yeah. type of job. And so now that job doesn't exist anymore. And there's no government programs like there is now. I think that's something to really stress is yeah. that the whole idea of, I know Hoover's going to talk about it. Maybe we'll just get to it now. The whole idea of rugged individualism, Yes. right? That, that it's, it's, uh, it's the American people are tough, that, but they want to look out for themselves. They want to do everything for themselves. And that's something we'll get into. Like Hoover said, why didn't Hoover do more? It wasn't so much that Hoover didn't, he didn't do more because they didn't think government should do more. That that was yeah, not that was government's role. Fundamental that was their belief. belief. And that was most people's belief at the time. It wasn't yeah. until things got so bad that they said, all right, now the government does have to get involved. And that really creates this government structure that we have today. I don't want to get ahead yeah, of yeah. ourselves, but yeah. 
this government, you know, the government actually having a connection with people's everyday Americans, everyday lives, right? Like with welfare and social security and these stimulus checks, right? Things like that nature. That was not even thought of back then. Nope. Or if it was that's thought actually, of, it's, well, it's, it's that, that, that's communism, that's socialism, yeah, that's bad. Absolutely. Exactly. But another thing that we have to understand is that, just like you said, like the 20s were, were doing really, really well. So they had the, it was a, the stock market was doing amazing, right? You had the bull market. So yeah. people were heavily investing and encouraged to invest in the stock market as kind of a way to make a lot of money, like really fast, mm-hmm. right? To, and they were actually would take out, they would take their life savings and buy stocks with it, or they would take out loans with their life savings and buy stocks with this. Um, and they would buy stocks on margin, which is like make, buying a lot of stocks with a small down, a small cash down like payment. A down payment, yeah, yeah. And it was considered safe as long as the stock prices continued to rise. And it was such a bull market in the pretty much all the twenties that it made sense. But if the stock started to fall, which what is eventually will happen, the brokers could issue a margin call demanding that they have to pay back their money immediately, the loan immediately. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that happens. And that just they, they don't have the money. The money's not there. And since the money's not there, people go take their money out, and that's going to cause a whole bunch of problems. Yes. But at the same time, while so while you have this happening, you have the growth of 1920s is really the growth of modern advertising. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's about these conveniences. Oh, here's a washing machine you could get. Like that comes out in the 20s. Here's an automobile, 20s. You have all of these new like things that consumer goods. Like consumer goods. Consumer goods, absolutely. And it becomes the first real consumer culture. And be, when it becomes consumer it, culture, yeah. People are like, I want to buy these things, and and you almost but they can't like, afford it. Exactly. However, so what, so what are they buying things with? Like, what well, are they people buying do credit? The same thing. Is, yeah, you, they buy everything on credit. Yep. Literally, so credit becomes a fairly new thing in 1920s, and people are buying this stuff on credit. Actually, Macy's is the first store to give out like what is considered like a modern version of a credit card. Uh, you know, buy now, pay later kind of deal. So installments, right? Ten dollars a month, it whatever it's going to be. That's all it was. Was installments, and but ultimately, what's happening is these corporations and companies are producing and producing and producing more toasters, more refrigerators, more this, more that. But eventually, people just kind of stop buying by mid twenty. Well, you, you only need so many. Exactly. Like how many? How many uh, uh, toaster ovens are you going to buy? And then, at that yeah. point, you also now the creditors are coming, the banks are coming in, like, hey, you got to like pay us back. Um. Which is starting to get to essentially what is known as overproduction. It's a very simple yeah. statement. So we kind of get it as well, supply economy, supply of past over demand. It's it's, exactly. it's that simple. There was more yep. supply than demand, so the price is going to go down, and they want their money back, and the money's not there. So what happens is companies. It's a vicious cycle. Companies begin to lay people off because they're not selling their products. When they lay people off, those workers, those blue collar workers, no longer have enough money to go out and purchase different products, right? And if they can't buy different products, that ultimately means that other companies suffer. And before you know it, you're going to have like a growing unemployment because companies are shutting down. One of the most important in like economic indicators that happened during the late 20s was the housing market. Um, the number of new dwellings was built that, was, that were built was growing substantially through 1920s. Um, but then all of a sudden, the real estate prices became too high for too many people because of the stagnant economy, because of the fact that some people are being laid off. And when housing started to fall, they said that so did jobs in many related industries. So like furniture manufacturing, lumbering, right? Like these are all, you know, things Major, like, think yeah. of what, yeah, think of what you need when you buy a house, like things that you need. All of a sudden, those industries start to suffer as well. Um 
so you know the United States, as much as the 1920s looks like, oh, everything's peachy. It's it's really not. Well, it really wasn't. I think it, what's also important to understand about the 1920s is there was a huge uneven distribution of wealth in the United States. Huge at that time, just like you still have now. But it was yeah in 1920s, everyone thinks everyone was rich. That really wasn't true. It was a businessman. The average everyday Americans, um, it wasn't really, it wasn't really the case, right? Um, the I top five percent. Yeah, I think it made average. Um, more than seventy percent of na- uh, nation's families earn less than twenty five hundred. Five hundred dollars a year. Yeah, so it's really only the yeah. top percent of American households earned about thirty percent of the entire country's income. Yeah, and so two thirds of the nation. Yeah, like you said, only earned about twenty five hundred dollars a year. Now, obviously, that's a lot more nineteen twenty money than it is today, but it's still not a lot of money. It, it's not what you think. So it wasn't like everyone was rich and had money, you know, grown on trees and stuff like that. Yeah. So you had all you had all of that going on. You had the, in, the installment plans like we talked about. Then you had something that definitely always falls through the cracks when people talk about it. You had the Hawley um, Smoot tariff, right? Yes. Absolutely. I'm sure you saw that, which basically really um, it, it put it uh, intensified the pressure because it raised the tax on imports. So Americans started to pur- purchase less from abroad because of the high cost and return foreign countries raised their tax raid tariffs on American products, causing fear to be sold overseas. So it's kind of like you raise price on us. Yeah, it's hurting the economy even more. So instead of raising interest rates to stop this speculation, the Federal Reserve made the mistake of lowering the rates. And this encouraged a lot of the banks to make make a lot of risky loans with people's money. And it misled business owners into thinking the economy was still expanding. And then you put all of that together, right? And then that's going to add up to October 29th, 1929, which is known as Black Tuesday. Yep. I was gonna have. I was just gonna add a couple of things too. We, well, one thing is that the only smooth tariff. We should mention that the intent behind that was was a good intent. I mean, the idea was like let's help American American, businesses. Yeah, exactly. Let's help American businesses so that people buy American. And that but can work, you, but you but it has to be a balance. Yeah, and that's the problem. It has to be a balance, backfire. and that's the problem. There wasn't. It was more of like it was more of this like no, we're we're going to help American businesses. We don't care about the foreign business. They had no idea that yeah, but the foreign business can do the exact same thing. It's, it's a trade war. You're going to raise our tariffs on our. Are you going to raise the tariffs on our products? We're going to raise on yours. You're actually going to hurt the American business because how many of these American businesses are shipping goods overseas? Now, if they can't make the money shipping overseas, and the the consumer buy rate is lower here in in the country itself, now you're cutting. Now you're you know what's that saying? It's like you cut off your hand to spite your what is it? Cut off your finger, something like that. Something you know what? Yeah, Yeah, the one that our parents used to tell us all the time. Yeah. Cut off your um, nose to spite your face. I don't know. Something yeah, like something like that. So someone will, and, someone will send us a thing. We messed it up. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, and before we get to the stock market crashing in September of 29, which I want to get to briefly, but just to go back to what you were saying about the une- uneven distribution of income, um, you know, while the rich got richer, the poor got poorer. That's ultimately what happened in the 20s. and Especially in the farmers. Especially absolutely. the farmers. And I, the Great Depression point. for the farmers wanna... starts in the 1920s. Yes, and I I wanted to come back to that because that was a big point you brought up earlier. But between 1920 and 1929, uh, the income of wealthiest one percent of the population rose by 75 percent, compared to nine percent increase for all other Americans. So, like for the one percent of Americans, the top one percent, their income rose by 75 percent, and then the average for the other 99 was nine percent. And just kind of like to figure this out. The economists started looking at, you know, going back and looking at 1920s right before the Depression, and they estimated they estimated that the average man or woman bought a new outfit of clothes only once a year because that's all they could afford. Imagine that. And this is before the Depression. Scarcely half of the homes in many cities had electric lights or furnace for heat, and they say that only one city home in ten 
had an electric refrigerator prior to this because America, like, we, as you were saying before, we think that everyone was so rich, but like, no, it was people aspiring to get to these things, just not quite making it. And the farming thing, uh, you know, again, we, before we get into the stock market crash, and we'll come back to the farming as well with the dust bowl and whatnot. But World War One is what really screws up the farmers because prices rose so much in World War One because the demand was so high for for crops, such as specifically wheat and corn. Um, ship overseas, yeah, yeah. So farmers planted way more than they could, and also they took out loans for land and equipment. It was about like the more land I have, the better equipment I have to like quickly, you know, get all my stuff from this land, the more money I'm going to have. But all of a sudden, it's like the, you know, farm income drops drastically in 1919, between 1919 and 1921. So directly following World War One, the annual farm income declined from 10 billion to just over 4 billion. So basically all these farmers that had gone into debt had difficulty paying off their loans that they got to get land. And essentially what happened back then is they kicked you off your land. I mean, they foreclosed. Banks just foreclosed. Hey, there's stories of, I was reading this one about a sheep farmer that basically realized he wasn't going to make any money off of his sheep during the depression. And because he couldn't feed him either. So rather than watch, he had over 3,000 sheep. Rather than watch them starve to death, he just cut their throats and threw them all into a canyon. And he was like, I'm done. And then he just like left, left his farm. Because he, you know, he lost it all. All right. So September 29th, as you mentioned before, stock prices peak and then fell. Um, so October 24th, specifically, the market took the one of the first major plunges, right? Yeah, um, There's there several. Yeah. Yes. So October 24th, uh, 1929, panic investors unload their shares. But that's not even that's not even the top of it, because on October 29th, what we now know as um, Black Tuesday, bottom fell out of the market and nation's confidence was pretty much gone. Right. They said yeah. that a number of shares dumped onto the market that day was a record 16.4 million. Um, yeah, basically, the market loss was about fourteen billion, um, yeah. for, and made for the week. The week was thirty billion. And that yeah, was ten saying. times more. That was ten times more than the uh, federal budget, and yeah. far more than the U.S. had even spent during all of World War One. Yeah. And um, they're basically saying that that thirty billion would be equivalent equivalent to like three hundred and seventy seven like billion dollars today or something like that. Like it's a huge number, a huge Crazy. number. Just to give people like an idea, and this is what really started people to start to panic. It was when this happened. And then everything else, and then the banks start to close. People go and try to get their money from the banks. The banks aren't. The banks lost all their money. So uh, well, well, the why banks did the banks lose the money. money? Why did the banks lose the money? Which well, the banks insane. were all investing that money exactly in these stocks, and, that, and people don't realize that too. Is when you're putting your money, you put your your money into a bank. You're not getting when you go to take that money out. You're not getting that same money out. Yeah. And this is before the bank. There was no Federal Reserve at this point, as far yeah, as yeah, like, no regulation. The, 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 there was no regulation. The, there was no safety net. The, the money wasn't federally insured like it is today. So the, you, if the bank closed, you lost your money. So people would go, well, I have some, such and such money in the bank. Let me go get it. They went and had these bank runs. And it's basically a lot of scholars and historians will argue it wasn't the stock market crash that caused the depression. It was the failure of the banking system. It was the panic that people had. And then running to go and, and running to get their money out, that causes the, um, that causes the depression. Yeah, remember the, it's a wonderful life. The the famous scene from a, when they're about to go on the honeymoon. George Bailey. They didn't lose their money. Yeah, and then it was, like, it the was, banks were closed. That's what it was. The banks were closed, and it was so bad that um it it actually um bombed out again in 1932, right? Well, yeah, and um 89 percent decline, 89 percent decline, which is huge. Think about it, and it didn't reach that number, the pre Great Depression number again until 1955. That's 23 years later. 
And that does include like, um, you know, inflation losses. So it takes 23 years before we get to, all right, now we're even to where it was before the Great Depression happened. It's nuts. That's how devastating this was for the economy. Yep. Like I wrote down in my notes that in 1929, 600 banks closed. But by 1933, 11,000 of the nation's 25,000 banks had failed completely, like disappeared. They're just never to reopen again. Yeah. And that's how you have these people who were millionaires or have, and they just lost everything. They just everything. lost everything. Because the oh, government did not They're protect nothing. or insure any bank accounts. So basically, you just – whatever. if you had $5 million in a bank account, gone. doesn't exist. And people knew that that could always happen, but they just didn't think it was going to happen. Like, well, things just keep on getting better. Remember, it was like a 10-year period where the stock market just pretty much kept on going up. So you just think it's going it's to why, – why would things suddenly change? And it wasn't overnight. There were signs. Yeah. A lot of people were aware of what was going to happen or at some point this bubble was going to have to burst. And when it does, though, it affects, you know, a lot of people that had a lot of money, but also affects people that had no money or were just kind of getting by anyway. Now they're totally, now, now they're totally done. Now they lost everything. Now, now they have no real means of pulling themselves out of this. And we should also talk about the fact that banks don't just take people's money. They take companies' money. Companies so this affected yeah. businesses tremendously. Exactly. The big um, businesses that- too, yeah. Absolutely. They said the gross national product, right, between uh, 1929 and 1932, the total output of goods and services, basically, that the United States had, right, um, was cut nearly in half from $104 billion to $59 billion just in, you know, three years. And during the first two years of the Depression, from 29 to 31, approximately 90,000 businesses went bankrupt. Um and among these are like once prosperous enterprises like automobiles, railroad companies, like things that people would say, oh, yeah, that's this one's for the grandkids. Like this isn't going anywhere. Well, that's it. He's trying to say that quote here. I see the movie um, with Russell Crowe, Cinderella Man, right? Yeah. Um, which is based on a true story. He loses his um, money because he invested in a taxi cab company in New York City. He's like, how does a taxi cab company in New York City go under? Yeah, I remember that. He, he even says in the movie, he's like, that, that was when I thought it was for the grandkids. And he loses millions of dollars because he invested in in that. And you would think, I'm on a taxi cab company in New York City. That's got to be golden. Yeah, That's perfect. Yeah, right? You know, but no, right. it went under, you lose all your money. So businesses overall sharply reduce all their investments, which basically cascades into reducing their workforces because they're like, well, we're not going to produce as much because we don't have as much money or capital. And obviously, when they reduce their workforces, you know, the, another indicator of how bad a nation's doing is unemployment, right? So- Unemployment within the first year of depression jumps from 3%, which is about 1.6 million workers, to 25%. So from 3% to 25%, which is 13 million workers, are unemployed within the first two, three years of the Great Depression. Um, They say one of every four workers was out of the job with no indication of getting a job anytime soon. I did used to do this in my class at one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, everyone, all fours, get up, you know, like... You just lost everything. You know, it's nuts. But then you have, you, have like the, you have the Joseph P. Kennedys, you know, that we did a podcast on. Yeah, who, a while back. we talked about who he, yeah. But he's he one of the money. ones that kind of got out, yeah, got out early. <laughs> but like we were saying before, yeah, there's one of four Americans lose their jobs, you lose everything. But you have to understand it's even more devastating back then because most homes were one income houses, yes. one income homes. It's not like it is today where you have two income, you know, two, both parents might work. So even if one loses their job, it's dev- it's it's hard, but it's not like, all right, we're not going to go hungry, you know, that sort of thing. That wasn't the case in the Great Depression. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. 
The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. If in most cases, you know, if it was the father who lost his job, that was it. They're supposed to be the breadwinner. And it became a huge psychological toll on to a lot of these men. So much so that I know there's that um, famous um, story that people would go in um, in the skyscrapers in New York City. There was a wave of suicides. So like they said that the clerks in hotels would ask people if they needed a room for sleeping or for jumping. That's crazy, isn't it? Because they would just jump. He lost everything, you know, maybe, you know, my family's bit off without me, you know? That that's it. Or they don't want to live on life on the streets or something like that. Nuts. Nuts. That, that's some of the mindset that was going on during this time. So what so what happens here, right? Basically, the economy shuts down more or less, right? Uh, the president, which we're going to get to in a second, President Herbert Hoover, doesn't really believe in government interference. And this we also need to mention that this is not the first time where the United States was in a bad economic recession or no, slash not depression. No, not at all. Yeah, these 40 years before. prior, that's a huge one, yeah. Yeah, these happened before. And in all other ones that have taken place in the United States, the government did not get involved. All it did was foster some form of communication, I guess, between the business and labor um, to try to get the business to really, the economy to jumpstart. Yeah, and, and they would so, encourage local charities and stuff like exactly. that. And Which is what Hoover even did. Donate. I mean, it's probably, Hoover donated a lot of money to, to you know, his personal money to charities. He's the first right, so president, he, by the way, to ever donate his salary out of in the history of the United yeah. States. Yeah, it says he just didn't think it was a government job. It was individual citizens' job, not the government's job. That was a mindset. Why didn't Hoover do anything? It just what it didn't even enter his mind, really. You yeah. know, it wasn't. It wasn't. He thought it, it was wasn't. He thought that yeah, it wasn't something that you would do. It went against the ideal of of America. It went against the ideal of that rugged individualism. Working hard for yourself. Yeah, and you'll get out of it. This too, yeah. this too shall pass. That's what he thought. In yeah. fact, he even says what I think in 1930, right? That we've got through the worst of it already. Yeah, he does. He even says that, and they're like, uh, "Not quite," but that's what he's telling people. Well, that's be that's and shortly thereafter. You, so, what a lot of people do is they move to these shanty towns, you know. And shortly thereafter, yeah. they become known as Hoovervilles. But these little towns consisted of shacks, basically. They spring up everywhere. They're all over different cities because people, you know, they're being evicted. They can't afford They were dangerous because these people, the people were cooking food and stuff in these houses made for basically leftover lumber, things yeah. like that. And it would catch fires and burn down. It was crime. Um, so, yeah, it was not like a nice place to be. No. Soup kitchens sprung up left and right at different churches and Bread other lines, organizations. Yeah. Bread lines, absolutely. Now, um, you know, we should really talk about rural areas as well. Between 1929 and 1932, about 400,000 farms were lost through foreclosure. I mean... That's crazy. And then you add this, I mean, I want to say natural phenomenon, but it wasn't a natural if you really look at it. Into was it. Man-made. it yeah, was dust, man-made. Yeah, the dust ball. The dust ball was caused by technology, essentially, by tractors, <laughs> if you think about well, it. Well, by tractors, by the overproduction of land. This is before they, they, didn't do, uh, they didn't do what they do now with crop rotation. So they would yeah. just have the one crop, like you said, wheat. And what that's doing is that's pulling all the nutrients out of the soil. They're not leaving any soil 
not growing other crops. So they're all dependent on one crop. So if one crop fails, that's it. Or if that price goes down, that's it. And it's only drawing the same nutrients out of the soil year after year after year that then the topsoil basically becomes like dust, like sand, right? Yeah. Yeah. When those high winds come, it just picks it up and brings it other places. It still happens today. If you ever YouTube like a dust storm and you'll see them, I mean, it it just just blocks out everything. Yeah. You know, I also like based on my research, the same thing where they said that um, deep plowing because of these these new affordable tractors would would break up grasslands, right, and plant yeah. millions of acres of new farmland. But the deep plowing from with these tractors removed the thick protective layer of prairie grass. Basically, just removed yeah. grass. And they were also overgrazing it with the cattle, so they yeah. ate all the prairie grass. So yeah. it wasn't there to hold all this. Yeah. All so there was literally no grass around. and no trees left to hold down the soil. Boom! You have wind, and you know what becomes known. There's a lot of documentaries made about this. Um, you have the dust bowl. And, Crazy, and right? we were throwing the, the, the drought, like the drought, a drought took place too, which made it even worse. And I mean, in, in, uh, what, 32 is when yeah. it starts. And the 34 one picked up, so the 34 dust bowl picked up millions of tons of dust from the plains and it carried it all the way. This is great plains to the East coast cities. They started getting yeah. dust in like New York city from the great plains. That's how dry to create planes where it's crazy. I can't. Um, again, so there is no federal system for direct relief. There's no cash zero, payments zero. for food. Government provides to the poor. Nothing. Um, there's charity services, but they're all basically just people helping Deprived. other people. Exactly. Yeah. Um, also, kids. A lot of kids. First of all, there's no way to heat schools. So schools close. There's no way to te- um, pay teachers. <laughs> so another reason why schools close. Milk consumption declines across the country. Clinics and hospitals report dramatic rise in malnutrition and diet-related diseases. Well, that, that's the big thing. I think they said about um, – sorry to interrupt, but like over 50% yeah, of um, children, particularly in like, yeah, those rural areas, um, did not have adequate food, shelter, and medical care. So many of them started suffering from rickets. Yeah, it's basically exactly. like bow-legged because they didn't have the nutrition there. As they grew, they're not going to grow as much, but their bones can't support the weight of everything else because they don't have the proper nutrition. So they get bow-legged and they get rickets. And it's just like a horrible thing. You can see those pictures of these little kids. Ugh. They said a lot of times in the world they would eat like dandelions or they would chew, you know, just eat anything they could find because they're just, they're literally they're starving. There's not enough food. And there's one story, what was it, in the, about a, um, a kid in school raises, you know, the teacher asks him a question. He's like, oh, I, I don't know the answer. Like, well, why not? It's like, I'm really hungry. It wasn't my turn to eat last night. Like, can you imagine that? This you is know? the United like, States of America. States of America, yeah. It's like, and I know there's, you know, unfortunately, there's still pe- you know, people hungry today in this country, which should not happen. All right. Yeah. That, that's a whole other, whole other issue. But like a kid says in school, you know, I'm, I, it was, well, it was my brother's turn. Lunch. It was I my mean, brother's if, turn to, yeah, that's, that's what's, well, that's, that's why, that's why we have free school. Comes lunch. To pass, yeah. yeah. But it was my brother's turn to eat last night. Nuts. Imagine that! My, my God, my God! Nuts. That one always got to me. That one always got to me. Yeah, that was pretty intense. Um, school years actually, school boards shortened the school years uh, and even closed schools because of tax revenues, failing tax revenues. But by 1933, 2,600 schools across the nation had shut down completely, which left more than 300,000 students just out of school. Like, oh, sorry, no school. Said, yeah, just like, go. Do find something else to do. Yeah, it's just crazy. And now. Um, between 1928 and 1932, the suicide rate in, across the United States rose by more than 30%, and then three times as many people than prior to 1928. Between 1928 and 1932, three times as many people were admitted to state mental hospitals 
because of depression. Crazy, right? It's nuts. Yeah, it's just, and people have they they feel lost. They they don't when you lose. You had the massive panic, right? So people panicked, they freaked out, and they lost, a lot of them lost everything, lost their jobs, have nothing. And then as the time goes by and they see no change and things actually get worse, then they lose hope. And when people start losing hope, things get that's when they get desperate, that's when things get bad. And I'm not trying to get off topic here, but as bad as things were here, go look over what happens in Germany at this time. It's ten oh, times, it's a hundred times yeah. worse. And that's going to lead, you know, they always say, how does that, you know, you know who that maniac come to power? Well, it's, it's, you know, the depression in Germany is a major cause of that too. Absolutely. These people lost all hope. They're looking for something and they find it. Absolutely. So Herbert Hoover, Herbert Hoover uh, ran for president in 1928 on the campaign pledge where he said, and I quote, a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. I mean, like talk about getting it wrong right i mean wow so that was in 1928 first of all october 29th uh the stock market's crashing herbert hoover tries to reassure americans that the nation's economy was basically going to be okay any lack of confidence in the economic future is foolish he would say right uh the best course in a slump many experts believed himself included was to do nothing and basically let the economy fix itself he tried that yeah, it didn't really work. Yeah, so we keep on saying this rugged individualism, which is the Americans pull themselves um, out of issues. This, this, he says that um, one of the government's major chief functions, uh, that was him describing in his own words, was to foster cooperation between competing groups and interests in society. So like if business and labor were in conflict, right, government should step in and help them find some form of a solution, like, you know, to serve mutual interests. And this cooperation always had to be voluntary rather than enforced. So Hoover felt basically the government's role was to encourage and facilitate cooperation, not to control anything. So when the economy went down and people suffered, he's like, all right, we need to figure out some form of cooperation between the business owners and the people and the workers. You know, it's like he opposed under all circumstances, opposed any form of federal welfare or direct relief to the needy, which he thought he was going to... Weaken like socialism. American, yeah. yeah, socialism is going to weaken American moral fiber. He said he like, was even against coming off the gold standard because he thought yes. that was also going to like go towards being communism. And one other reason why he got um, elected, they said, is because he favored prohibition. He favored keeping it. Really, I didn't know that. Yeah, he was a big supporter of prohibition. And even I though people were drinking be, during the Great Depression, but right. And I don't want us to be like. You know, a hated hater on Hoover kind of podcast because I mean, episode that's not the in, intent. It um, would have been any politician that was in power at this time. If it was a Republican part, politician, would have been a Republican, so. which it would have been because they were being yep. so popular. It would have pretty much been the same thing. Yep. Absolutely. Pretty much would have been the same thing. And we have to also mention, like, so Herbert Hoover was born into a Quaker family, right, in Iowa. He was orphaned at an early age. His life was basically a story of rags to riches. I mean, he worked his way through Stanford University, then makes a fortune as a mining engineer, consultant in China, Australia, um, Europe, and Africa. Then during World War One, he coordinates the biggest world, U- like you know, it was U.S. relief effort uh, for Europe. You know, for food basically, he he fed all of Europe in World War One, which earns yeah. him a reputation for essentially the biggest humanitarian in the world so you know president hoover always said like every time we find solutions outside of government we have not only strengthened character but we have preserved our sense of real government like 
this was not a bad guy. He just had a no. Certain, he was a, he was not an uncaring man either. Yeah, no. He just had like a different political compass. And, different, he didn't think government. Because he he really saw that if the government does this, where's it going to end? That the government once it gets the power, just continue on. So does it continue to grow? And he doesn't. He didn't believe that was the government's role to really get involved in the everyday life of people. Yeah, but then but then we should also mention that when someone is starving and watching their kids starve, and your president tells you, hey. You could do this. Uh, that that that's not good enough. Yeah, um, and when they're doing everything that they can, they're trying to get a job, or they are. Maybe they are even working. Yeah, they can only get a couple hours here and there. And, but it, the pay, it's the pay is not enough. Yeah, you're saying, well, you know, just stick with it. We'll we'll tough it through. You know, if you work hard enough, you're like, what do you mean work hard enough? Like, yeah. I can barely stand because exactly. of you know how hard I'm working and I'm not eating every night and stuff like that. And you want me to work harder? He's like, and and they're like, no. That's what like, I can't do it. Yeah. Yep. Hoover was basically seen as a person that just did not get it. And to a lot of people, and actually, quite frankly, you know, if you look at it, it seemed like he didn't get it, at least at least until the very end, because he started getting it towards the end, but it was too late. So let's talk about late. some yeah. of the stuff he does, right? Like you have the well, Hoover I, Dam or the Boulder Dam, yeah. right? What, what, what are mm-hmm. you going to say? Go. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no I'm, I'm just, well, I want to get to at some point his probably his biggest blunder, which definitely cost him the election. But oh, of we'll course. I mean, we got so let's let, before we get there. Because um, I know where you're going with that one. You're you're going to talk about the bonus march, which literally just yes, ends, yes. ends his presidency. It's but, done. It's done. Yeah. But in um, fall of 1929, so like one year into his presidency, the Great Depression starting, he is he authorizes the construction of the Boulder Dam, which is later renamed the Hoover Dam, which is basically a precursor to what we will talk about in a later podcast, um, kind of the New Deal program where the government sponsors, you know, a massive... What's the word? I'm infrastructure. Infrastructure yeah. project. Yeah. That's going to not only employ a lot of people, but also create electricity, energy. So, I mean, this is this is like a precursor. This is what he should have been doing more of. But he kind of stops there, right? Um, then he tries to do this whole like federal home loan banking act. So he, he kind of appeals to Congress to pass a series of his measures to reform banking, provide some form of mortgage relief, funnel more f- um, federal money into business investments. But his big thing was... The Reconstruction Finance Corporation, which authorized $2 billion for emergency financing for banks, life insurance companies, railroads, and other large businesses. This is the key. He is now – he's allowing government to give billions of dollars, but not to people. He's financing banks, life insurance companies, railroads, and other large businesses because his belief was that this money would somehow trickle down to the average it's, citizen. Yeah, it's trickled down economics. Yeah, exactly. Through job growth and higher wages. The problem is that people were like – um. We're hungry now. We cannot wait for the benefits to trickle down. To yeah, their, all know. these things were doing. It was not a direct relief at the moment. It was stuff yeah. that theoretically could work. And I'm sure it did work in certain parts of the country, different things. I mean, one thing we kind of like skipped over here is all like the um, the racial discrimination that's going on in the Absolutely. country too at this point. Because African-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, Native Americans, uh, they're all being treated even worse at this time. Because they're being blamed. They're the first ones to lose their jobs. Yeah. Um, they're, they, you know, get out of they get out of our town. Don't even stop here and stuff like that. So that's going on. And again, these people are not going to get helped by trickle economics. Like the people who are no. at the bottom, it's, it's no. by the time it trickles down to them, they're going to be start. They're they're dead. They start. Yeah, by, the t- by the time it trickles down, uh, Hoover's no longer president. Um, well, yeah, that's however, like what's left from Hoover. So all the shanty towns that we mentioned before become known as Hoovervilles. Homeless people start calling newspapers they wrap themselves in Hoover yeah. blankets. Empty pockets that you would turn inside out were considered because they were white on the inside were considered Hoover flags. Basically, all his you know, name many, is yeah is synonymous part of, with yeah with, with the depression. 
with, with depression, with suffering, with failure. Like exactly, that's yeah. Like the Hoover, the greatest humanitarian to ever live. That's what they were called him just ten years prior. Was now seen as the most, the coldest and heartless man ever. Crazy. Yeah, a lot of those lists by people always put him as one of like the worst presidents ever. You always see, yeah. you always see it put there, and you can make the argument. I think it's kind of shifted a little bit. Um, the narrative well, he's on no him. James, he's no James Buchanan, that's for sure. No, 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 no. But I mean, but I think a lot of the a lot of the narrative has shifted on him. That be a little more like, all right, it, it, the depression itself was not his fault. Yeah. Indeed, he could have done more to try to fix it. But you can argue even all the stuff that FDR does later on that really doesn't fix the depression either. No, it doesn't. We, and we know that we know that for a fact to. it doesn't. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about the thing that kind of puts the final nail in the coffin for Herbert Hoover, and I think that's going to be a good way to kind of finish this off with okay, and he loses the election. So what happens? Now? Yeah, there's no chance. Well, what basically takes place is you have a lot of these marches and um, things like that during the Great Depression, but one of the largest ones was what becomes known as the Bonus Army. It's basically World War One veterans, right? And they march to Washington, D.C. because they want their um, bonus checks from serving in World War One, which you're not supposed to get, I think, until 1941. 45, they, they want actually. It, 45, whatever it was. They want it now. You know, it's like that 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 like movie, that TV show, not TV show, commercial way. See, right? It's my money. I want it now. Like that whole yep. thing. Yep, you know yep. what I'm talking about? J.G. Wentworth, whatever. Yep. Anyway, and, and again, um, we should say that these guys signed a piece of paper in 1921. I mean, not 21. Yeah. In uh, World War One, that said, "Hey, listen, you're going to be compensated adequately for your wartime service. You're going to get a bonus, and Congress is going to approve this bonus, which they do in 1924. And it is agreed upon that this bonus will be paid out in 1945 in a form of cash and life insurance policy. But now it's 1932, and these guys are like, I'm not waiting till 45. I can't feed well, my family. Saying, yeah, I can't feed my family. I'm, I'm not going to live in 1945. I, I want that." money now yep. so they go together and they march on washington dc yep. and they're actually camped out right there for days and they're yep. waiting and they're waiting they're and they're you know they're hoping that the congress gonna is going to make a decision congress is going to make a decision and congress does not exactly congress like, then, sorry you're not getting it but you know what, you're not getting you the get money. there we should mention this interesting thing because a lot of people forget this that hoover during this time actually provided food and supplies for the people like he was okay. Yeah, he was. <laughs> yeah, he didn't really have an issue. He, I think he. Yeah. yeah, he said he could peacefully march. I'm okay with that. Here's food. Yeah. Here's what you need. Yeah, and even camping out like right there on the Capitol. Yeah, he was fine with it. He had no and, problem. He had no problem with that. Yep. But then when when Congress says no, you're not going to get the money. He says you got to. And, and then they're saying, well, we're not leaving. That's when he does something which doesn't go very well because it's, this is two reasons. One, he sends in the army. Okay, so you have army veterans. You have army veterans getting pushed out by the modern army, and a lot of the famous figures, MacArthur, right, Patton, they're there. Oh, so Eisenhower, Eisenhower. Yeah. Eisenhower, yeah, Eisenhower hated doing this. That's I remember yeah. he talks about this. MacArthur, not so much. He's like, yeah, they're they're radicals, get them out of here. But Eisenhower, he did not want to do this. And what they're doing is they're t tearing down the shanty towns, tearing down the Hoovervilles. They're firing tear gas. But just like today, where so people take out their I cell phones and catch it. The news, yeah. the news. I'm sorry, Pete. Yeah, the, no, no, the newsreels are there, and they're recording it all, and this is getting shown to people. So people not only reading about it days later, they actually can see it, and this just angers people. How dare they do this to veterans, veterans. That's what I was of the say. First World veterans. War? You're forcing them out, and these are women and children there too. Yeah, the whole uh, family. You could have done. You could have just given them more time to leave or let them leave. Or you had to go in there with, with the army. You actually had tanks rolling down the street. You know, soldiers. Yeah. Fighting, fighting soldiers, guns, but, yeah, fighting soldiers, fighting tear gas, you know, stuff like that. People screaming, people yelling. 
You know, they didn't, they burnt down the town. They burnt down a lot of people who had very little possessions, lost all the possessions because the army came in and just burnt everything down. Yeah. And when people see this on these newsreels and stuff that when they're going to the movies and they're watching this sort of stuff, it just enrages people. And then the election's coming up in 32. Forget it. Who yeah. has, doesn't have a shot? No chance. I think he even knows it too. Actually, there's this famous quote. When Roosevelt heard about the attack on the Bonus Army, and this was proven, he said to his friend Felix Frankfurter, well, Felix, this will elect me. Like, he knew it. It was done. Yeah, yeah, because you just play on that, and that's going to – no one is going to like the fact that veterans got forced out of where they they were. You might be – maybe the country can't give them money now. Maybe you feel one way or the other on that. But the fact they're being forced out and then you see it, and you're seeing like kids crying – you know, being forced out, or their or their dad getting beat up by, by by the army. It's just it's not going to go well by anybody. Nope. And it's not a good PR move. So the guy that um that runs against Herbert Hoover, because we should mention Herbert Hoover does run for re-election, and you know this is, I mean this is not nothing. So Roosevelt, which we will talk about in a later podcast, won an overwhelming victory. Right, he captured. 23 million votes to Hoover's nearly 16 million, but Hoover still got 16 million. Like not, not the whole country didn't absolutely turn against him, but it was, it was done. Yeah. He had no real chance of winning. He wasn't, the cities turned against him. Yeah. Look, uh, that, that was a big thing too, with the population centers where we had the massive unemployment, where you had the bread lines, you had those sorts of things and the farmers turned against him too. Crazy. Well, I guess uh, that's it for, for today's topic. I mean, we will continue this and kind of talk about the FDR's version of it. But this is kind of weird. I want to say, do you have any fun facts about like... Well, I wouldn't say fun, but some interesting <laughs> facts say, right, that I did find a couple that I thought were kind of... Um, a lot of like the popular foods that like are popular now were also became popular during the Great Depression, like uh, macaroni and cheese and things like that. And also some weird ones that didn't really... Um, catch on very well now like peanut butter stuffed baked onions what um obviously monopoly and scrabble first came out during this time okay okay um well some of the things i found out that miniature golf became really popular during the great depression because it was like such a low operating course cost that it was oh. cheap so it was like really popular with like families because you can just go and play miniature golf like it was like a small area they put up a couple obstacles have fun stuff like that so okay. there was you know things of that nature that popped out um, some good things. But for the most part, everything about this was pretty bad. And it affects, you know, generations that come. I always tell this story. I guess we can close on this or right after this, that um, growing up myself, um, my mom used to always become, my mom's like a hoarder of ketchup. I was like, mom, why do you have just ketchup bottles? And as soon as like half the ketchup bottle was like empty, she'd just be like, throw it out, get a new one. I just bought three more today. And what it was was because my grandmother grew up during the Depression. And, you know, they were never started. They would try to stretch things out. What yeah. they would do for, like, ketchup and all the condiments is that when there was a little bit left, they would put water in it and, like, shake it up. Oh. You know, and I use it that way. So my grandmother, like, kept on doing that even, you know, in the, you know, in after my mom was, you know, years later after she got married and had my mother. And my mom was like, why can't I just have normal ketchup? I don't want to have this runny, you know. That's funny. Watery ketchup all the time because my grandmother would still do that. Like, you know, a little bit of ketchup in there, shake the water bottle. No, you have to use that one before you can open up a new one. And my mom just hated that. So even to this day, like if there's like ha- like a little bit of ketchup left or just like once the ketchup starts to get watery, that's it. It's in the garbage. Grab another wow. one. And she's always going to have more. But she just refuses to even remember the watery ketchup. And that basically, go, you know, that's a, that's a great depression. You know, that's wow. a consequence of it. 
You know, it's wow. not like a big game-ending thing, but I thought it's you know a little connection there. So, did you know that the Three Little Pigs, which actually came yes, out in 1933, right, by Disney, yes. uh, was supposedly evasive, I mean, not supposedly, it was designed as a symbol you know, of the Great Depression with the wolf representing the Depression and the Three Little Pigs representing average citizens who eventually, you know, basically... Yeah, by working lost. together. Yeah, the they only way yeah, you can do is... Crazy. Um, also, another thing that I thought that was interesting is movies. A lot of Americans went to the movies. Well, it was, it was escapism. Yeah, and it, like the movies actually were became cheap. A record of sixty to eighty million Americans went to the movies every week. Eighty million yeah, movies being movies being cheap, and it was all like movies that are like like King Kong, you know what I mean? Like Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, like things that could just like escape reality almost. Well, you would go there for a while too, because they would show like cartoons beforehand, newsreels beforehand. Like it was like a all day for it was hours. You would be there. Did you hear about the fact that um, Al Capone actually opened up soup kitchens in Chicago? Yeah, well, that was more public relations more yeah, than anything else. Yeah, he was trying yeah. to seem like a good guy, so he opened up. Uh, but for some people, it was because he actually, you know, they got they got food. It was probably lots of times it was the only food they got the whole day was from his uh, soup kitchens. It's crazy, right? Al Capone. Yeah. Al Capone. Nuts. Anyway, good good intro. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, as always, thank you, everyone, for tuning in and listening to our podcast. And if you ever need anything, you could find us at historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. And um, I think that's it. I got nothing else. You got anything? Yeah, that's good for today. And we'll just get ready for this is our first two-parter dealing with the uh, star of the Great Depression and how, what Hoover did. And then we'll, next week, we'll tackle FDR and how he tries to end this Great Depression. Absolutely. So thank you so much, guys, and we'll see you guys next week. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.